You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. As I've mentioned previously on the podcast, my brother and I were the proprietors of an online pet supplies business for a full decade. And one significant advantage of running an online enterprise was not having to rent a store in a pricey shopping mall. Although I should point out as the business grew, we did need to purchase land and construct a warehouse. However, there was one notable cost factor that traditional brick-and-mortar stores didn't have to contend with. That was shipping. Throughout our tenure in the business, the expenses associated with shipping packages consistently escalated, and it far outpaced the rate of inflation. We ultimately sold the business back in 2010, and I should note it was doing very well at the time. Nonetheless, I can't help but wonder whether we'd still be operational today if we had chosen to stick with it. And that's because exorbitant shipping rates have become the norm. Smaller businesses like the one we own simply lack the bargaining leverage of industry giants like Amazon and Walmart, who of course are able to secure more favorable shipping rates. Of course, this isn't anything new. The expense of shipping has persisted throughout history. Whether in the era of horse-drawn transport or in the contemporary world of overnight air shipments, Mankind has perpetually grappled with the endeavor of efficiently moving goods from point A to point B while minimizing costs. And to prove this point, today I present to you the true story of one man who, at the dawn of the 20th century, came up with a novel way of reducing the expenses associated with shipping an oversized package from Germany to the United States. It's a great story that I've titled Box for a Better Life. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. On Saturday, November 16th, in 1901, delivery men for the American Express Company climbed the stairs to a third floor apartment that was located at number 23 Langestrasse or Long Street in Hamburg, Germany. Inside, they found little more than a large wooden crate and they were instructed to pick it up and bring it down to the docks on the nearby Elba River. Now, the crate was described as having measured 5 foot 10 inches in length by 2 foot 10 inches from front to back, and it stood about 4 feet tall. Of course, this is before widespread use of the metric system, so let me do some quick conversions here. That's about 178 centimeters long by 86 centimeters front to back, and it stood about 122 centimeters tall. And while an exact weight was never ever mentioned by the press, 
it's safe to assume since this is a wooden crate that it weighed in excess of 200 pounds or 91 kilograms. In other words, it was quite heavy. In addition, each end of the lid was marked this side up and used no hooks. And there was also a warning on the crate not to drop it. So just what was inside this crate that required such delicate handling? You know, it's quite large. You know, perhaps a small piano with its legs removed or a valuable painting or an antique piece of furniture. Well, I can tell you it wasn't any of these things. Now, according to American Express, the box contains some sort of artist's models. Yet the apartment's occupant, that's Johann Beck, he told his landlady that the crate contained all of his earthly possessions. And that was true. He was moving to the United States to start a new life, and he arranged for all of his stuff to be shipped there. And of course, that may or may not have included an artist's model or two. Press coverage in 1901 depicted Beck as a 25-year-old house painter who had struggled to find consistent work in Germany, and that prompted his decision to relocate. However, a brief examination of his immigration records, they reveal that Johann Beck was born on November 30th of 1871 in Austria. And if you just do a little bit of calculation there, he was really 30 years old when he entered the United States. Now, Beck was smart in opting to pay a bit more for express delivery. And while this choice didn't hasten the arrival of the crate in the United States, I mean, everything on the ship gets to its destination simultaneously, it did ensure that his crate would be positioned atop the stack of all the other crates, and of course, that expedited its removal from the ship shortly after arrival. The final destination of the shipping crate was the Union Square Hotel, which was located at Union Square East and 15th Street in Manhattan, And of course, that overlooked Union Square Park. But we're jumping ahead here. Let's rewind the narrative just a bit. Now, the crate had just been picked up by the expressman, who subsequently transported it to the dock, where it was loaded onto the steamship Palatia of the Hamburg American Line. And we all know that modern transatlantic air travel can be accomplished in a matter of hours. But the Palatia, under Captain Reesing's command, it was anticipated to require a full 14 days to complete the voyage. But it took even longer than that. First, there was a one-day delay in departure, plus the ship didn't make very good time crossing the Atlantic. 16 days later, the vessel finally docked in Hoboken, New Jersey. And for those of you who are not familiar with the area, let me just tell you that Hoboken is directly across the Hudson River from Manhattan Island. Anyway, they then began the laborious task of unloading all the cargo. And it was longshoreman Frank Roeder who first went down into hatch number four, and that's where the crate containing all of Johann Beck's worldly possessions was located. Then, suddenly, Roeder's ears caught an unexpected sound akin to a human voice. He wondered, could there be a stowaway hidden in the cargo hold? You know, such an occurrence wouldn't have been unprecedented by any means. Straining his ears, Rotor managed to decipher the faint, hoarse utterances, and they formed the German word for water, Wasser. And the source of this plea was none other than Johann Beck's crate. Yep, you guessed it correctly. When I mentioned that Johann Beck had shipped all his worldly possessions, I meant precisely that, and that included Johann Beck himself. Beck was the artist's model supposedly contained in the crate. 
His five foot four inch or 163 centimeter frame was in an extremely debilitated state, having endured several days without a single sip of water, all while confined within the pitch dark shipping crate that has served as his home for the past 16 days. I mean, can you imagine? So you're probably wondering what was inside of Beck's crate. Well, let me just give you a brief rundown. In addition to the cans and bottles that contained his food and water, there was a beat-up brown valise that contained socks and two changes of underwear that also served as his pillow. For bedding, the bottom of the crate was lined with a thick layer of hay, and that was covered by a large piece of burlap. An old yellow and brown checkered overcoat sat to one side of where Johan laid down, and then there was a rack built into the underside of the lid that contained four shirts, six collars, a foot-long ruler, a flat camel's hair paintbrush, and a card confirming that he was a member in good standing of the Hamburg House Painters Union. The most personal thing found among all of his possessions was a stack of handwritten letters from the love of his life, Johanna. Beck was unconscious for a short period after being rescued, but upon regaining his senses, he was transported to St. Mary's Hospital in Hoboken for care. The road to recovery was projected to be quite lengthy, but following his discharge, officials planned to transport him to Ellis Island and proceed with deportation. He was headed right back to where he came from. However, things took an unexpected turn. As news of Beck's audacious journey as human cargo reached the press, his tale garnered widespread sympathy from readers all around the country. And one of these was a well-known broker, real estate owner, and horseman named Newton Bennington. He told the press two days after Beck's rescue, quote, This plucky German will not be deported if I can help it. I like his spunk. I believe he has the stuff in him that good American citizens are made of. I arranged today with the immigration authorities to file the necessary bonds holding myself responsible that he does not become a public charge. I understand the bonds required amount to but a few hundred dollars. I am willing to wager the sum on the man's picking up and becoming a worthy citizen. He added, Some of my friends on the train this morning argued that the man should be deported because of his conduct. I took the opposite view. The case will be brought before the Special Board of Inquiry as soon as Beck gets well. Johann Beck, who now preferred to use the more anglicized name of John, he clearly had a champion on his side. But just why did he opt to ship himself in a crate? He certainly wasn't the first or last person in history to attempt such a thing. Uh, Henry Box Brown may be the most famous case. But one has to wonder what was going through his mind to follow through on such a harebrained scheme. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Fortunately for us, Beck received a $50 payment, that's about $1,800 today, for recounting his story to the press. Therefore, I'm going to read his account to you. This narrative initially appeared on page one of the December 7th, 1901 edition of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. But I should point out that certain sections proved illegible, so I had to resort to abbreviated versions of the story that were published in other newspapers, and I used that to reconstruct as much of it as possible. Regrettably, a few paragraphs do remain absent because they weren't reprinted elsewhere. Here we go. I came to America in a box because I felt there was hope for me in this country and nowhere else. Times are very bad in Germany. I was in Hamburg since last January, and in all that time I had no regular employment. I worked a few days or weeks, then was idle for weeks. I saved my money as well as I could, but I could never keep anything. Johanna, she is my sweetheart. I do not want to tell her family name. She is at home now with her family in Wismar, Mecklenburg, Germany. When Johanna went home to Wismar, times grew worse. I tried to sell door plates when I could get no work at my trade. I tried everything I could think of, but I could not get ahead. I was not sinking, for I always had a little money left, but I could not add anything to it. We often talked of America. We thought if we could save enough money to get married and come here, we must be able to make a good living. But I know that the American law would not let us stay in the United States unless we had some money. As soon as I can make some money, I shall send for Johanna and we shall be married. I met her first in Hamburg last winter and there she promised to marry me. But we were poor. Her illness took all her money and I cannot have anything because I earned barely enough to pay for my lodging. As a little side note, there was no mention of what her illness was. His story continues. Why not go to America and earn money and send for Johanna, I thought. But how should I get to America? Steerage passage was 120 marks and I never had more than 20 or 30 marks at a time. Now, 120 marks is about $30 back then or about $1,100 today. And of course, as he just said, he never had more than a fraction of that at any one time. It was early in November that I began to think of sending myself to America in a box as freight. Where I got the idea, I do not know. Perhaps I read it somewhere long ago, but if I read the thing, I have forgotten where. The more I thought of the plan, the better it seemed. I have good self-control. I was not afraid. I weigh only 130 pounds when I am in health, that's about 59 kilograms, and I felt sure that I could easily be carried around without danger of being dropped or hurt. I knew from reading that man can best sustain life on a vegetable diet when he is sedentary. Therefore, I determined to do without any meat on my voyage to America. I thought I would live on the simplest vegetable diet possible. While I was walking around looking for work, I thought of my trip. When I went to bed, I was always planning for the voyage. At night, I was afraid, but in the daytime, I felt sure that I would arrive in America without accident. 
I went to the office of the Hamburg American Line on Tuesday, November 12th, and learned that there was no express steamer that week, but that the steamship Palatia Captain Reesing would sail for America on the following Saturday. She would take 14 days or less, they told me, perhaps only 12 days. I had very little money and I made up my mind that I could not wait for the next express steamer. A day or two would make little difference to a man ready to travel 10 days in a box. For two marks, which is about $18 today, I bought in a second-hand lumber yard the packing box in which I came here. For 30 fennigs, which is $2.70 today, I bought a few strips of thin stuff about two inches wide by an eighth of an inch thick, that's five centimeters by three millimeters thick, to make the false bottom on the box lid, a sort of rack in which I could carry collars, stationary neckties, and other things that are easily injured and which must not be put down in the box with me. For a few more fennigs, I bought four latches or thumb screws to fasten the lid onto the box. I had no eyes for these latches to fasten in, but the storekeeper gave me eight nails, which I afterward drove against each other in loops like eyes. I carried the packing box home to my lodgings on the evening of Wednesday, November 13th. I told my landlady I was going to ship all my belongings over to America. My rent was paid up to Saturday night, so she did not care. I began to fit up the box on Thursday morning. A carpenter friend of mine lent me the tools. I cut up strips of the thin stuff for battens and nailed them on the inside of the box lid so that it was all solid like a door. Then I built the false bottom or rack on the box lid and put in all my small belongings. I bought for 25 fennigs, that's about $2.25 a day, a piece of thick, coarse cotton 6 feet 6 inches long by 3 feet wide. That's about 1 by 2 meters. I got an armful of hay in a stable and carried it home. I packed it in the bottom of the box for a bed and tucked the cotton cloth around it. I bought provisions for my box in a store around the corner from my lodging. I paid 1 mark 15 fennigs, that's about $10.35 today, for 14 pints of seltzer water, 30 fennigs, that's $2.70 for 1 pound of dates, and 2 marks or $18 for 2.5 pounds of chocolate. I knew that the chocolate alone was sustained life, but I added the dates as a luxury. I also bought two pounds of preserved plums for one mark or nine dollars, but the jar they were in was broken, so I could not eat them. I worked all day Friday and most of Friday night packing my clothes in the box and putting away the provisions carefully so that I could find each article without difficulty. When all was ready, I climbed into the box and drew down the lid. It was almost dark inside, but I found the hasps and locked down the lid. I was comfortable. I wrote a letter to Schaefer and Newmuller in New York asking them to excuse me for shipping myself to them and to give me work. I thought they may give me a chance because my manner of traveling to them was so novel. I did not know them, but I picked up one of their cards in a cafe in Hamburg. So I'll just pause the story for a few moments here and just tell you what that letter said. Quote, from J. Beck, Hamburg, November 15th. In time with speed to New York. Sir, without work and without means, I am at the end of my resources and to procure my boat and at the same time to come to the land of my hopes, I am to send myself and goods by the ship Palatia, Captain Reesing.
I calculated upon your magnanimity, which will spare me an unpleasant return. I have not the honor of being acquainted with you. I am not afraid of any work and would like work at the expenses. Coming with the Palatia, as already mentioned, I leave Hamburg on Sunday, November 17, in the hope of arriving in New York in good health. I have need to beg for my excuse as well as for the trouble as my bad English. My best thanks in advance. Most respectfully, Johann Beck. Now just for a second, think what your response to this letter would be. Andreas F. Schaefer and Clara Neumuller were the proprietors of the upscale Union Square Hotel, and then suddenly, out of the blue, they get a letter from someone who they've never met. He says he's coming over on a ship and that he seeks employment. What would you do? Schaefer told the New York Tribune shortly after Beck's arrival, quote, I thought some lunatic had written to me, so I paid no attention to the letter. The man probably picked up one of our business cards at Hamburg and trusted us to give him work. The American Express Company, shippers of the box, evidently suspected something was wrong. A week ago, they asked me about the box of artist models that was consigned to me. So that's what happened with the letter that Beck mailed to Neumuller and Schaefer. Basically, they ignored it. So let's continue with Johann's telling of the story. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I went to the office of the American Express Company at number 11 Schmidt-Strasse, Hamburg, and told them I had a model at my lodging which I wanted shipped as express freight to Schaefer and Neumuller in New York. When I told them the size and weight of the box, they said the charge would be 32 marks, or $288 a day, and I told them to collect it in New York. I said I wanted them to call for the box at 1 p.m., and they must be careful with it and keep it right side up. I hurried home and put on two suits of clothes. Then I told my landlady I was going out, but that when the expressman called, she should let them get the box from my room. Then I went outdoors, but came in again and reached my room without being seen. I watched until the expressman came to the house. Then, before they could climb up to my room on the third floor, I got into the box and fastened the lid from the inside. The expressman called early. I heard them read the warning on the box lid, Nichtsturzen, which meant take care. Now Google Translate claims it means do not fall, which I interpret to be do not drop. Anyway, they carried me down the three flights of stairs with great care and put me in the wagon without shaking me up. I was comfortable in my box. They put me down carefully on the steamship pier. 
I knew that I'd be loaded onto the Palacia quite late because I had found out that the rule is to put in express freight last of all so that it can be taken out quickly at the end of the voyage. When I had lain on the pier for a long time, the box was suddenly pushed over and I could feel that a rope sling was being fastened around it. Then I heard a whistle and I felt myself flying through the air. Another whistle and I was sinking fast. All my seltzer bottles were along the floor on the left side of the case, tucked in beside the bedding so as to save them. But when the men raised me up in the hold and piled my box on top of a big packing case, they rolled it over for a moment on its side and let it drop a few inches. The jolting broke three of my seltzer bottles. That meant water for three days, but I still had 11 pints left and I thought that would last. I don't think the men saw the water that leaked out. None of them said anything about it. I knew I was piled high on top of the cargo of my deck. There was still a little light in my box, not real light, but grayness that came through the cracks in the wood. About an hour after I was loaded on the ship, I heard the men close the iron door of the bulkhead. Then I was in black darkness. Still, I was comfortable. By bending my knees a little, I could lie flat on my back. When I grew tired of that, I could sit up without my head touching the top of the box. As soon as I was sure that the men had gone away, I unfastened the lid of my box and raised it. Then I discovered I was piled up so high that the next deck above was only 18 inches away. That's about 46 centimeters. I did not care to struggle to get out, so I sat down in my box. It was black as midnight outside and there was very little room. I could hear a great many people walking over my head and very close to me. I thought I must be on the deck under the steerage. They tell me now it was the steerage. Soon after I was left alone, I went to sleep. I had not slept much for the two days and nights I was making ready for the voyage. I slept, I suppose, for hours. I was awakened late that afternoon when the ship began to move down the river. I have heard that she was detained there for one day, but I was not sure of that at the time. I could tell when night came. The noise of footfall ceased in the steerage just 18 inches over my head. When all was still, I could hear the men on watch walking about. I could hear them talking, that is, I could hear the tones of voices but not the words, when one watch relieved the other. I invented a way to tell time. I took the crystal off my watch and felt the hands. When both hands were together at the top, right under the chain ring, I knew it was 12 o'clock. If there were many feet scuffling about the deck, I knew it was midnight. Soon I learned to tell the hour hand from the minute hand. I could always discover the time within an hour or so. I knew when we left the river and began the sea voyage by the rolling of the ship. My box was well packed with other boxes on each side so that it did not shake, but the rolling motion was terrible to me. I felt it all the time. I can feel it this moment whenever I shut my eyes. It seems as if I were back in my box and the ship was rolling heavily. But I did not suffer from nausea at all. The only trouble was that my head felt as if it were rolling off. I was asleep most of the time for the first two days and nights. One thing surprised me, the noise of the rats. I could hear them running over the cargo, their claws scratching on the wood of the packing cases. 
They ran across my case too and scratched at it. I suppose they smelled food inside and wanted it. I was afraid to make noise to drive them away because I did not want any of the sailors to hear me and drag me out. It was ghastly to hear the rats running around and squeaking while I was lying in the dark like a rat caught in a trap. Still, they did not gnaw at my box or try to attack me in any way. How did I spend my time? By building air castles for Johanna and myself. Johan, I said, you must find work in America. It is a rich country and every man who is willing to work hard can make a fortune. You will soon be there. If you can get work at your trade as a painter, good. If not, you are young and strong and you can sweep the streets if necessary to make a beginning. When you get 100 marks, that's about $900 today, you can send for Johanna and marry her and then you will both work hard and make a fortune and someday you will go home and visit Germany for a few weeks and you won't have to travel like this. I was always building these air castles when I was awake. I was disappointed in my experience of the voyage in a box. It was not so bad as I used to think it would be when I was planning it at home. I was pretty comfortable except for the darkness and the noise of the rats. And I was always thinking of the good fortune waiting for me in America. Now, I'll just mention at this point that there are three paragraphs missing here. And the reason I know that is it's just a tear that goes right up the middle of those three paragraphs. So I have the first half of every line, but not the second half. I do know that one of the paragraphs dealt with something happening on the third day, but I don't know what that was, and I'm not going to guess. So let's continue. It must have been on the 13th day that I found that I had not one drop of water left. Immediately, my thirst began to torture me. I did not dream of streams and fountains, but I was asleep nearly all the time, a sort of dreamy doing. I was tempted to crawl out of my box and knock at the deck right above me for help, but I said, No, if you knock, they will catch you and send you back to Germany. You are almost in America now. Have courage for a little while. And I should point out this one sentence missing here in the story, but let's continue on. I took up one of the seltzer bottles to take a drink, then found it was empty. Then I tried one bottle after another, all empty. I had no coffee in the bottles, as they tell me the papers said I had. I knew I could call for help at any time by knocking on the deck right over my head and then calling out. But I made up my mind that I would not do it. I must wait a little longer until my box was delivered in New York. I was so thirsty that I could not eat. I had a quarter of a pound, that's 113 grams of chocolate left, but without water, I could not swallow it. I think I was without water for four days, but I am not sure if I was two days out of the way in my reckoning. I thought the voyage lasted 14 days, but the people tell me I was 16 days in the ship. I was dozing and confused at the last... I shall never forget the gleam of gray that came through the slits in the box when the stevedores opened the bulkhead and began to take out cargo from my part of the ship. I could not stand the thirst any longer. Water, water, I cried as I threw back the lid of the box and crawled toward the light. The longshoreman near me called out, but I was too weak to move farther or say anything. I lay there and moaned. 
When I again became conscious, Captain Reesing and two doctors were taking care of me. Then I was brought to this hospital. Sir, I have had nothing but kindness since I came to America. I asked the American people not to send me back to Germany. I am industrious and sober. I will work at anything to get a living. I'm not an anarchist or a socialist. I am a German working man, and all I ask is a chance to earn my living in this free country. I entreat the American people not to send me away. And he concludes, this is the whole true story of my trip. And that's basically where the press dropped the story, and it does leave us with a number of unanswered questions. For example, was Beck deported back to Germany? Was he fined for illegal entry into the United States? And if he was allowed to stay in the U.S., did his beloved Johanna ever come over? And even if she didn't come over, did the two ever marry? Well, with a bit of sleuthing, I was able to piece together the remainder of the story. First, Johann, or now John Beck, was released from St. Mary's Hospital on December 9th of 1901, seven days after his arrival. He was then taken as planned to Ellis Island to legally apply for entry into the United States, which was granted. He was allowed to stay. Mr. Schaefer, that's the man that Beck mailed that letter to, he offered him a job at the hotel as a painter for $30 a month, which is about $1,082 per month today. But later on, Beck would go out on his own as a painter. Thanks to his earnings, the sale of his story, and the kindness of others, he managed to settle the substantial $70 bill that the Hamburg American line presented him with. Now, $70 doesn't sound like a lot, but that's about $2,500 today. Their charges encompassed not only the $15 fee for express shipment of the crate, but they had the nerve to add in $29.50 for a third-class passenger ticket, $2.50 for the ambulance transport to the hospital, a $10 penalty for violation of immigration law that was done by the government, plus, of course, some other miscellaneous expenses. But it is worth noting that if Beck had simply purchased a steerage ticket back in Germany, he could have saved more than $40. That's nearly $1,450 today. As for the love of his life, Johanna Bruins, she arrived in the United States less than 12 months after Johann did. I'm going to venture a guess and assume she didn't come over in a wooden crate. But the two did marry shortly after that. They'd stayed together for the remainder of their lives, although the census shows that they never did have children together. Johann John Beck died on February 28th of 1928 at 56 years of age. Johanna Bruin Beck passed away three years later on October 15th of 1931. She was 50 years old. Both were cremated at the Fresh Pond Crematory in Queens, New York, which claims to be the oldest crematory in the United States, having been established in 1884. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. While researching this story, I have to say my favorite part was finally figuring out that Johann and Johanna were able to marry and stay together. Honestly, it's the way all love stories should end. And when I sat down to write this episode, I really didn't plan on reading his entire story as it appeared in the newspaper. 
but I quickly realized there was absolutely no way I could improve upon it. Plus, excluding a few minor details, his telling really did match up well with what the press had initially reported. You know, sometimes these first-hand accounts can be embellished quite a bit, but this one definitely was not. Just a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I would greatly appreciate if you could share it with someone. You know, that could be through Reddit, Facebook, X, you know, that's a site formerly known as Twitter, or by whatever means you think will help grow my audience. Anything you can do to help spread the word is greatly appreciated. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. So be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you will find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts in not just history, but also science, wellness, education, and the arts. Anyways, as always, thanks for listening and take care, everyone. Bye.